Hello, I'm David Rothenberg. You tuned into the Fortune Society's first podcast, Inside Fortune. That opening theme song was the formidable Joan Baez singing Phil Oakes's memorable song, There But For Fortune, which has been resonating with us at the Fortune Society for decades. Inside Fortune will be a periodic podcast co-hosted by myself and Andre Ward. We'll begin this morning with a recent interview that I did with uh, Joanne Page, the CEO of Fortune. There won't be a quiz at the end, but I would pay close attention because she reveals a lot of information that could be helpful. Joanne Page, good morning. Good morning, David Rothenberg, and how wonderful it is to hear you on a Saturday I, I know, you, you like vacuuming. And I want to congratulate you because for the last four years, you have toiled and have won, and, well, you tell us. The headline, well, the headline in the news says victory for ex-cons, and I immediately said, no victory for the formerly incarcerated and for Joanne Page. <laughs> well, you know, I love a good fight, too, so this has been a joy. Uh, Fortune is what it was when you started it back in 1967, right? We do advocacy, but we are made up of folks who are formerly incarcerated and of folks who are not but care about justice. And as we've built our services, our advocacy keeps getting informed by our services. And what we were finding as we started creating housing, like the castle, which is one of my favorite places in the world, what we saw was absolute discrimination against folks with records. You know, incarceration is a place created to cause pain. It's created for punishment, but the punishment doesn't stop when people get released. And one of the biggest ways in which it happens is, hold on, my phone is ringing and I'm getting rid of it. <laughs> one of the ways, the biggest ways in which it happens is that people have a hard time finding jobs, have a hard time finding housing. And when we opened our housing, we realized there were no protections against discrimination in housing based on record. There were small protections that were growing against job discrimination. And what we ended up doing was pairing up with a civil rights law firm in Washington because we had just had the experience of trying to rent apartments in a building in, um, in the Rockaways called Sandcastle. And they basically told us, we will not consider anybody you send to us because of their records. We don't care how long ago. We don't care what the record was for. We don't care what they've done since. We will not consider anybody with a record. So we paired up with this wonderful pro bono law firm, and we sued them. We sued them in federal court, and it's actually five years since we filed our lawsuit. Our theory was one that got affirmed by the Supreme Court right after we filed our lawsuit. And we filed under a Fair Housing Act violation. And there are two ways of proving discrimination. One is intent, which is really hard, and the other one is something called disparate impact, which means that if you do certain behaviors, they have a disparate impact on protected people. And here, if you discriminate against people with records, because we are so racially wrong about how we do criminal justice and arrest, you're going to disproportionately impact people of color. So our theory was you're violating the Fair Housing Act. We're going to sue. We sued, and the case has been kicking around in federal court. It's gotten national attention because... 
this theory, we're kind of first out of the box. Well, let me ask, Joanne, let me ask you two questions. One, why does it take five years for a case, if you can explain the legal part? And secondly, by winning in court with this, what are the implications around the country? This is a federal court, so can others use this case to make a similar plea? Yes, and yes, and yes. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what's so exciting about it. Uh, The big win is not the court case, although it's really important, but the settlement that came out of it. So what happened is this was an initial court hearing, and what the judge said is we have the right to sue, and we've done a good enough job in proving disparate impact that we could go forward, and then the defendant settled. What's so important is that means the court decision stands. It's a precedent that can be used across the country. But this is a settlement of over a million dollars where the key thing in the settlement for us was we wanted it large because we wanted it to be a deterrent to landlords who discriminate, and we wanted the right to talk about it. A lot of settlements are kept confidential, and for us it would have been a deal breaker if this had to be confidential. So it is all over the newspapers this week. It's all over the country in the real estate publications. And what we're saying to landlords is if you discriminate, you can really get hurt financially. So it's a good idea not to do it. Well, and it's a tool that can be used by other advocates. Maybe you can explain one of the things that that I've been learning about since uh, you've been dealing with housing. And that is Fortune has a scattered site housing plan. And that means when people get out of the castle, for example, uh, and they want to find some place to live, that we have arrangements with different real with different real estate people who let them into their apartments. You're always looking for new landlords to allow to even consider, and and we have provide continuing counseling, do we not, for the people we that do. are going into it? So maybe you can explain that. So scattered site is a way of renting apartments in the community. Unfortunately, it is very limited in terms of eligibility because it's for people who need permanent supportive housing because they fit certain criteria. So it's not available to most folks, as opposed to the castle, which has no real criteria other than homeless, formerly incarcerated, and willing to work on yourself. But we go looking for apartments, and we hit discrimination all the time. And this is going to be a powerful tool to open up apartments to our folks. Well, let me give you an opportunity to brag about something. Not only Castle Gardens, if you the concept which the building attached to the castle, but that you have news about a subsequent one. Really, two, David. Two, yes, well. So we house about 400 formerly incarcerated people at any time, about half of them in the castle, which is our emergency and transitional and in the castle gardens which is our permanent but the rest are in scattered site but what we're finding is more and more seniors coming out who have no real income except public assistance at 215 dollars who are homeless who often have medical issues who probably cannot hold a job because they're older and not able to be in the workforce and they've got nowhere to go and half the folks coming out of state prison are getting dumped in the shelters so what we're going to be doing in 2021 is opening 57 apartments for seniors who are formerly incarcerated and homeless. And then in another two or three years, we were given the right to develop a piece of land in East Harlem, and we're going to be creating another apartment building like Castle Gardens, and we're looking to do more. The, the hard thing about the castle 
is there are so many people we would love to take in and, and we can. have no room. The, the thing to stress is Castle Gardens, the I guess 114 apartments, that half the residents are formerly incarcerated and the other half went on the open market for affordable housing. But the I think the, the, the most extraordinary thing and historical thing that you've done that the media it's too it, for some reason it's elusive but what you have done particularly with the castle and can be used as a guideline is the issue of not in my backyard about our population you dealt with so skillfully and that at this point the castle is where the community board meets where the people in the neighborhood vote where they send their children on Halloween to be scared, and as you have said, first they were afraid of us, now they send us their children. You have a farmer's market every Wednesday for the neighborhood where people come and get free fruit and vegetables. So it's, it's uh, not in my backyard. It has become, as far as the castle is concerned, in our backyard, please, more. Well, you know what's so interesting about it is the people who opposed us originally were the people who had helped anchor that neighborhood and make it a safe place. And when they saw that we were making the place safer, uh, people flipped. They went from opposing us to supporting us. How'd you do it? How'd you do it, Joanne Page? Well, a couple of different things. One is just very simple. What we heard was what I called hit-and-run human services, where people would come in, make all kinds of promises, and then dump vulnerable people in a vulnerable community. We said, you are going to find us. We will be at the community meetings. We'll be at the police precinct meetings. We bought the building in 1998. We go to six meetings in the community every month, and still, still do. Still, still. Yes, I ran into Vaughn. Problems. I ran into. I ran into Vaughn recently. I said, "You're going to get a medal of honor for all the community board meetings you've had to attend." That's tough. <laughs> well, you know, we hit huge opposition, but it's become huge support. We make the community safer. And we make the community warmer but by you did, bringing you, in the kids, by you, vegetable displays. We, we are part of the neighborhood. But you did something extraordinary, and I want to share with people. At one of the, I don't know, one of the tenant meetings, you went in with a formerly incarcerated man, Edmund, who grew up in the neighborhood, and he talked about who he was when he was a threat to the neighborhood and, and saying, now I'm not. Let me, I want to be part of you. That was kind of exciting. It was actually wonderful. He went to the police precinct council meeting, and the only time he'd ever been in the police station was when he was brought in in cops. And there he was coming in as a community representative. Extraordinary. So the end result of all of this now, by the way, shame on the New York Times. You, You were talking about, and I've seen the clips of all over the country, this... The the this story is bigger than the the victory that you won with the landlord because in addition to it, you, what you have been doing is, is dealing with the whole concept of housing for a ignored and overlooked and and prejudged population, and dealing at the same time with the not in my backyard issue. It's a major story, not to be written, yet to be written. So if anybody's from the real estate section of the Sunday New York Times, I have a tip for you. There's a story waiting to be written about what Joanne Page has led in the courts and in the housing of this city. That's really rather monumental. And I, um, so good for you. Well, it's a great joy. You know, advocacy victories don't come often. But this one can change what happens in terms of hundreds of thousands of people 
who are seeking housing after incarceration across the country. So we are thrilled. And don't you love that? Don't you love that John Weidman at the end of the meeting to the residents of the castle said that he had never seen been greeted by people, and he said it was just so spontaneous. As he walked around the building, people just stopped him and greeted him. Residents, he was. And I said, well, it certainly wasn't choreographed. This is not a population you can choreograph their movements. They just are so – you know what? I I don't know if I ever told you. I ran into a resident once on the subway, and I said, hi, Eddie. How are you? And he said, fine. I said, where are you heading? He said, I'm going home. And he was going to the castle. And I said, he mm-hmm. called it home. I've never – people that live in the shelter never say, I'm going home. They make yeah. a face. But the fact that he said this is home is pretty pretty in- indicative. What Stanley Richards and I say about fortune is we want to create the world that we wish we had. And what Castle is, is probably the safest place that people have known in their lives with a lot of love. And when people move out, they move out with a community of people they've come through the castle with. So they move out with the people who can help them support to support them in building good lives. Well, you know, I've heard, I've heard you say that over the years. You're going to make friends. And you know, I'd say, yeah, yeah, Joe, and that's nice. And then, and then about six months ago, some, I don't remember what, it was ha- what had happened. And one of the alumni from the castle said, well, I'll check in with my guys. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there are about 18 of us who all went through the castle and we – we what are they what are they, they tweet each other i know it was a word that I, yeah. they tweet each other every morning to make sure that they're all okay and they're living in all parts of the city and i said that's what she was talking about that's yeah, what joanne meant through 10 years ago and they're having thanksgiving dinner together every year and that's something it's it's beautiful you know when i feel really depressed about the human race i go to the castle because you get to see people rebuilding their lives exactly and it's just beautiful exactly. Well, victory for formerly incarcerated, the headline said in the news, Queen's landlord settles suit and blanket nicks on rentals. Joanne Page, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. I'll see you this week. And David, thank you for creating Fortune in 1967. My pleasure. I'm David Rothenberg. And I'm Andre Ward. And one of the issues that comes up all the time is clearly reentry. People on that they're coming out and the difficulty that people have coming to fortune or coming out of any prison around the country is the adjustment of uh, of shedding that coat of armor that they wear to protect themselves inside, uh, difficulty finding jobs, difficulty communicating with people that don't understand. And so that's covered over and over again. But what's not talked about is People like you who have been out, how long have you been home? I've been home almost 11 years, January 16th, so, 11 So everybody years. would assume here you are in a nice coat and a tie and you look spiffy and you, you, mm-hmm. your job at, at Fortune Society is what? I'm the Associate Vice President of the David Rothenberg Center for well, Public so, Policy. So there your you are. Your namesake. Want. Yes. And, and you have your own home and you, you know, everything and you look like a prosperous citizen, which you are. Mm-hmm. But I've heard you and other guys who have been home for years say that there are still issues that you never stop re-entering. Mm-hmm. And uh, we both know the Sam Rivera story. Sam's been home for 30 years. He went to Canada. He went Canada. to Canada and mm-hmm. he stopped at the border mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let him in. And all they want to know is about his crime in 1981. Mm-hmm. And he said that they didn't care about what he did in the 30 years intervening. So I'm wondering what... Um, 
well, let's go back to your coming out and the and the original reentry mm-hmm. issues and how you dealt with them. But then subsequently, what continues to linger? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was released in January sixteenth of two thousand nine, David. And you know, after, I, after how much time? After serving sixteen years yeah. in prison. So that's a lot. That, it's a long period of time in prison. I like the analogy around the coat of armor, right? Yeah. These layers, right, that people have on. And I think the work of removing those layers for me started while I was in prison, right? I began to address my own vulnerabilities and get in tune with um, my responsibility relative to the impact I had on people's lives, right, who but are armed. I occasionally I mm-hmm. hear guys say that, but in that very negative environment, how did you get past that to, to be self-exploring? Yeah, I mean, I committed to, like, self-discovery, right? This entire commitment to learning who I was, um, learning what I needed to contribute to the world. And that took years, obviously, there. I went to prison, I was, like, maybe 20 years, 19 turning 20 years old. And so I was still in this place of self-discovery. And it's after maybe, like, four or five years, and also being engaged with different organizations within the prison that were headed by men who were formed, who'd been in prison for, like, 15, 20 years and were trying to give back and mentor younger men inside is when I found out and discovered, like, what my purpose would be in life. And so it wasn't easy to navigate. I witnessed violence. I witnessed abuse in those spaces. I, too, was in solitary confinement on a few occasions. Um, So I understood, like, the intensity and the trauma associated with being in that environment. Yet still, you know, I was committed to learning who I was. I was committed to studying. And again, so I localized myself in different organizations I'm to grow. Up in. When, I, when I hear someone say I was committed to it, I always suspect that there was someone early in your life mm-hmm. that believed in you and that in the back of your mind, they were the they were the motivating factor you wanted to prove to that, whoever that was. Usually it's a grandma or a, a mother or an aunt. Who was it in your life? Yeah, so it was actually my son. When I went to prison, mm-hmm. um, the mother of my son was three months pregnant, right? And so I thought, as someone who grew up without having his dad in his life, that it was super important for me to learn and to grow because who would teach this young child? who happened to be identified as a boy, right? He's a, he's a boy. At some point, he'll grow up to be a man. And so for me, I wanted to be able to be a person of knowledge to him, even while incarcerated. So that was like the impetus of me, like really changing my life, wanting to learn more, because I knew I had to give back to this child in some way. Did since he, I left you, his did life. he come and visit with Yeah, he mother? did. He actually, from birth all the way up until he, you know, he was 16 years old. And I wouldn't have him come often, right, because I was sensitive about the impact that had on my families, traveling up to Attica, up to Wyoming, and different facilities throughout New York State. So I would see him maybe like twice a year or something to that effect. But I saw him from birth when he was born all the way up until 16 years old. I would write to him often. I would speak with him on the phone. Um, And it was just through that repetition and consistency that my son, although he had learned as he got older that I was incarcerated, um, realized, never knew about who I was necessarily. He never saw who I was. may have heard stories, see photos of me, whatever, but he never knew me in that. In real time. Are you putting a negative picture on who you were? Am I saying that? Yes. So in my ignorance, obviously, David, as I was a younger person in my teenage years, um, obviously I was reckless. And obviously I had no real sensitivity necessarily um, toward people who um, weren't a part of the spaces that I was in. Mm. So coming out after 16 years, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously 
assuming a relationship with, with your son, but housing, jobs, interacting with the with the world. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it and you know I don't I don't trivialize my experience of incarceration. Again, again, it was hugely impactful for my life. Um, again, it's a really negative environment in prisons and not one that's necessarily conducive to one's development unless you commit yourself to doing that. And so when in I came... Spite, in spite in of spite the envi- environment. Exactly. That must, spite, it must be tough. It is. It's tough, David, but again, there's always a group of people, well, a cadre of folk who well, are really committed well, to that. We met them here at Fortune. We right. Them. And they're all here at Fortune, many of whom are in executive capacity or just staff who are working to build the work of fortune that you have founded. And so when I came home from prison, right, my son, just to kind of stay with him a little bit, my son was 16 years old at the time. He was selling drugs. He wasn't going to school, all that kind of stuff. I, however, when I came home, I knew I wasn't going to do that. Right. I knew because I was an avid reader and learner in prison that I, when I came home, education would be a vehicle through which I would kind of like use to kind of grow and become a part of an institution or organization like Fortune. But my son wasn't doing that. And so I spoke with him and I, we talked and I said, well, son, like, what do you want to do with your life? I didn't come out to like chastise him and like upbraid him about whatever he was doing. I just simply said, what do you want to do? And so he kind of studied and watched me to see what I was going to do. And he saw what I was doing. I started going to school. I was working, all that kind of stuff. And one day, my son, you know, I started going to school. I spoke to the, the, the administration there. And they thought I was some big person, David, right? Because I went suited up like I am now, right? I speak like I speak, if right? If this were television, you'd see a million-dollar model. <laughs> for us. I speak how I speak. And when I went there, they thought I was like some professor or something, Mr. Ward, et cetera. And so I, they said, well, what do you want to do with your son? How do you want to, like, schedule? He's smart, et cetera. I said, well, it's not what I want to do. Let's ask him what he wants to do, mm. right? Again, empowering him as a younger person growing up. And so I said, what do you want me to do, son? Call you because I wasn't with his mom, but we were very good friends. And so he said, well, you can call me every morning. So I used to call him every morning and wake him up to go to school. My son, some days it would be hit or miss. Tired, Pops. Some days, okay, I'm up. Finally, one day my son said, you know what, Pops? I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to get my high school diploma. I said, okay, I'm with you, right? Because I hope, like, smoking marijuana wouldn't be a profession for you, right? Which, obviously, he was into at the time. My son eventually graduated from high school. He'd been in the military six years. He's married. I have a grandson that's two years old. He has, you know, he has a home. He lives out in Texas. And so, for me... What were your barriers, though, besides the relationship with the son? Well, the one barrier was, obviously, you know, when I came home, I had to live with my mom. Right, that was like a barrier for me because I had lived with my mom since I was 17 years old by choice. Yeah, well, you right? didn't have money to rent an apartment. What, 17 years old? Yeah, no, when you got out. Oh, right, exactly. So I had to stay with my mom, right, which was was somewhat a barrier to a degree oh, because right. you know now I had it's almost an infantilizing experience, right? Yeah, now you're, I have to thir- go, you're 36 and you're right, living with mom. Exactly, right. So yeah. that was kind of a barrier that I had to kind of reconcile. Um, having parole officers visit my mom's home. Right? And ask me, like, where are you going? Like, what are you doing? Like, how far are you going? But, Andre, what about the guys that come home at 36 and there's no mommy to stay with and they're in the shelter thinking, I wish I had a mommy? Right. And that's a huge barrier for people. Um, And for which I didn't have that necessarily as a barrier, but I think in terms of barrier about me having to go back and live with folk, that's a barrier. Of course. But, you know, other barriers, for example, is I remember I had applied for a position. I'm at an organization before I started working at Fortune and stuff. And this was like several, about maybe eight, about nine years ago, ten years ago. And the organization 
that I had applied for this position at um, was governed by the Office of Mental Health, OMH. And so because of my conviction, OMH rejected my application, right? And it was a barrier for me. Here it is, right? I had a demonstration of, like, having changed my life, right? I came home. I was on a certain track. I was already in school. But they denied they, me the position. They were looking at you on paper, and they didn't That's see exactly you. right. And I think that's one of the major barriers, right? People look at what's on paper rather than engaging with the human being. Well, the parole uh, essay that I did earlier was very yep. good. It's consist- very but consistent what, with what, that. But things like jobs and housing are clear. What about just the emotional things, getting on a subway or mixing in the crowd, having a relationship with a woman? I mean, those are... Yeah, you know, David... Those so are not talked about as much. They aren't, David. And I didn't necessarily have major struggles with transportation, like understanding You've those things. You've heard people talk about it. I've heard, I've heard a bunch of stories about that. People trying to figure out how to use the ca- the machine, right, to access um, a card, right, to get on a train, right? All well, I've, I've heard people, even at Fortune, who've been out for years, say they get to work an hour early because they can't ride during the rush hour. Because during the rush hour. Because they're so they're traumatized so, by the crowd. That's exactly right. And, you know, being in close proximity to people, I think, you know, for me, David, I didn't necessarily have those kind of experiences because while I was incarcerated, I interfaced with people, civilians all the time, right? Mm-hmm. People from Hunt, from uh, Vassar College, from Harvard, and others, professors, elected officials. I was a part of that cadre of people inside you made that interfaced. Cho- you made choices inside. Right. So I was still, I was connected very much to outside even though I was inside. Got so it. for me, transitioning was like walking from one door to the next. Sure, I had to learn how to use a cell phone, but I wasn't like traumatized nor like being around a lot of people in the space because I was already doing that inside, right, and talking to people that weren't in prison, but interfacing you, with But you do see it in others, of course. It's, it's a thousand percent true, David, that many, many people struggle from that because they haven't reconciled, you know, that experience, right, of incarceration with dealing with reality of being home. And it's hard. What about interacting with people? Have you ever read uh, Ted Conover's book, the guy, I think it's called New Jack, the guy who became a prison guard for a year? to see how it was. And I've heard of the book before, but I've never well, read it. Well, after a year, his mother said either, his mother, his wife said mm-hmm. to him, either you quit that job or I quit you because mm-hmm. he became so prison-like mm-hmm. in his personality that it, he, she didn't want to sustain a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, uh, relationships. I, I don't mean yeah, just, I, I don't I, mean j- just romantic, just interacting no, with No, I'll people. even like even go to more romantic kind of relationships. You know, I, I came home you know, my goal was obviously to go to school, right, to settle down. I didn't want to run around the world with people and all that kind of stuff. I did that in my ignorance, so that wasn't something I was trying to re-explore. And I met someone while I was in college. She was in college at the same time. We met each other, seemed to have similar interests and goals. And I said, okay, um, let's move in together. And so did I you did. Know you had done 16 years? Of course. Uh-huh. Right? I've been very transparent about my experience, like who I was, because if you couldn't accept me in that way, then... What, were there times as the years go on where she suddenly said... No, it's quite the, the, the converse, David. I think what happened is, while I was in that experience, I almost felt incarcerated, right? Because she was like, like, where are you going? And like, what you doing? And like, what's that? I almost felt like it was a correctional officer, a parole officer. And that, you know, it really interfered with our relationship. Right, because while I was out, I was active, David. I would come to like fortune events, college initiative events. I would go. As soon as I came home, I was like in the mix, right, of what's happening in criminal justice reform movement in the studio all the time. You remember when I first came home? So, So, because of that, 
it was hard for her to understand that I mean I wasn't around running around cheating with people on, on her. I was in the world doing what I was passionate about. It was hard for her to understand that, and because of that, it seemed like I was being confined almost, and I couldn't sustain being in a relationship because of that. It, 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 sometimes it's difficult when you're in the middle of a crisis to sit down and, and try and analyze it because you're dealing with just surviving it rather mm -hmm. than analyzing it. Mm -hmm. um, what about just friendships and trust, things like that? Have they been dissipated as a result of prison? Well, I mean, to some degree, David, but then again, I, I built a core set of values while I was, I was incarcerated, right? That I would, my relationship would be based on integrity. Even in my ignorance, right, it was about that. I just wasn't able to articulate it. But my relationship is based on integrity. So when I came home, I dealt, obviously there's a level of scrutiny with my engagement with people, right? And and my scrutiny of people is heightened owing to my incarcerated experience. So, so but at a place like Fortune where you're employed, you're constantly meeting people coming out. Mm -hmm. Do you get frustrated at them not seeing what you see? Yeah, it is. It's frustrating, David, sometimes. But my understanding is a lot of them didn't have the orientation I had while I was incarcerated. A lot of them didn't engage in the programs and with people like I did. So because of that understanding, I bear a great degree of responsibility and patience with them. But you see, the thing about taking advantage of what you did inside, mm -hmm. they're, they're open for everybody, but there were reasons why people make choices to opt in or opt out. Right. And a lot of it, David, is attributed to fear. Right, fear of what others may think of you, right? Because you know those that those kind of circles and, and cadres and groups inside that are doing those positive things are oftentimes looked at as like sellouts, or you are uh, what do they call? Them? They call us rats, right? Or like sellouts, well, or like snitching. Did. They do all that kind do of. Do things stuff. come back? You know, I I had dinner with uh, about five or six guys at mm -hmm. some midtown deli, mm -hmm. and uh, suddenly somebody tapped on the table like that, and everybody laughed but me. Mm -hmm. And I said, "What's that?" And they said, "Well, the twenty minutes are up. We have to uh, that the uh, guards will bang on yeah. their stick, and 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 people have trouble eating mm -hmm. because when they come out." Kaz Torrey says he still has trouble eating slowly because of the, for all the years that he had to eat in and out in 20 minutes. Yeah, I think, you know, especially when I was in Attica, right? Attica is a really dismal environment, right? You come to Attica prison, it's you, the tension is so thick that you can even, you can like feel it, like literally. When I first was brought from downstate to Attica prison and I was brought into the door, after I got off the bus, you can like feel it. You don't have to be all the way in it. It's you've yeah. been there, David. You know? yeah. And it was remarkable. And as I learned the history of it, and this is nineteen ninety two. And this happened in seventy one, the Attica Rebellion Riot. And so you can feel it there. It's just really tension filled. And while you're inside the mess hall, you're eating, right? The off the guards there, they they do that kind of stuff. They hit the table, right? Make sure people move. I mean, I still eat rather quickly now. I don't know if it's attributed to that necessarily or a function of being out in the world and just trying to get things done, but I'm sure there's some correlation to that, David, that because I was things were rushed oftentimes, I eat fairly quickly. But I think other people, people never been in prison sometimes eat quickly too. Yeah. So. But, but, but it's a function of some of that But you're experience. constantly in touch with people that are going through varying degrees of re-entry crisis. Sure, absolutely, David. And a large part of why people, you know, we've heard this idea of institutionalization, right? People have been institutionalized, right? Do you and feel you were <clears throat> or are? No, I don't feel I was institutionalized, David, in that you fought kind of your way. way. You fought it all the yeah, way through. Yeah, and it took, 
it doesn't have, you no, said I, you were thrown in the box. Was that because you were fighting for your individuality? Not necessarily, David, right? I, I had violated some of the rules of the prison, right? So therefore, I was put in solitary confinement. But the rules were rather insignificant, right? Like being out of place, going to get a, a birthday card from my mom downstairs on another floor. Well the, well, the frustrating thing for the, you know, we deal with a lot of the families who call us. They get frustrated because there are visiting rules when they're in Greenhaven and then their loved ones switch to Sing Sing and the rules are all different. Mm -hmm. And they're told in each place that this is what makes the place safe and they wonder why is it, is it work in one place but not in the other. Yeah, and you know, David, one of the most challenging things and most humiliating of experiences while being in prison is being strip searched when you're going on a visit, right? When someone else has to look at you and obviously look at the different cavities in your body, like to make sure there's no, I mean, not, not like really like drugs or anything like that. And it's not that like they're touching you per se, but they actually like to, to do that yourself in a way that's one of the most humiliating, degrading things I've ever experienced in my life, right? And so that's one of the reasons why I often didn't want to have visits. Did you ever see the movie? Did you, ever, you know the movie Hurricane that Denzel yeah, yeah, Washington sure. played? There's a scene where he finally says to the woman in his life, don't come visit yeah, anymore. Yeah, because you're like a chain and on she my doesn't neck, weight on my neck. She didn't mm -hmm. understand it, but he couldn't bear mm -hmm. not only the indignities, mm -hmm. but the emotional part of her leaving. Mm -hmm. No, I remember that clearly, and that, that really resonates with me. When I saw that, and his exact words is, don't come up here anymore because you're like a weight around my neck. And that translated into, I can't handle the emotional connection to you while I'm inside of this space like that, coupled with you possibly leaving, coupled with the humiliation of going on a visit to me and strip search. But knowing that I'm holding the emotion of being connected to you while dealing with this and the uncertainty of you still being in this space, I'd rather you just leave. Yeah. I had a similar way of approaching that when I was incarcerated because I went to the parole board five times. So my first parole board hearing, my son's mother came up to see me and I asked her not to come back and see me anymore. And yep. she wept. And it was because I didn't want to be attached to that, right? Because mm -hmm. one of the things that... Did the parole board ever ask you about who you became or was it all about the crime? Well, I... I forced that conversation, right? They asked me about the nature of my offense, right? Of course, they right? could have said you were belligerent because right. you're forcing exactly, the right? But I You take a gamble on how to approach it. Yeah, well, you know, I had been a part of, of the lifers committee, even though I didn't have life at the end of my sentence. I was just really active like that while inside. And we would always practice and do, like, mock parole interviews. Did. We did all that kind of stuff. And, then, you know, the Deuce Club had been around as a newsletter, and we would have been a part of that. But I had already been prepared to respond to the parole board. I did my research. I did my history. I knew this data, statistics around how many people were hit as parole. So I was kind of ready. But you have to know which board member you're getting because that's a crapshoot. Oh, absolutely. There and was, I had a few You know, there was a wonderful ones. woman named Barbara Treen who had been a parole board member and came to Fortune after she resigned. Mm -hmm. And she said she was constantly in a fight with the other parole board people who didn't see the humanity in the people coming before them. All they saw was the crime that they committed years past. I had dedicated myself to being a voice for those who wouldn't be able to raise their mm. voices because they had life sentences. Because I had an 8 to 24 year sentence, my conditional release date would be 16 years, which they made me do. But the parole board becomes the judge and jury exactly. all over again. And so what I would do is, when I would go to the first board, I accepted that, right, as a moral kind of acceptance, right, for being culpable with what I did, even though I served my 8 years, right? The second one, I even okay, you know what? You got hit with two more years. You know, you, you committed this act, right? You were involved in drug distribution and trafficking. Subsequently, people's life were taken as a result of a shootout. So you hold that. You own that. 
But then when I got to my third and fourth board, when I knew I was about to like get closer to like my condition release, I started talking to them. Mm. Right, I started going before the parole Which board. Which is probably they don't get that much, probably. Right, and I said, you know, I remember I never forget the conversation I had with the parole board commissioners. It was three of them, and I said to them, you know, thank you for allowing me to be come before you. Right, here's what I've done with my life. I've demonstrated this. I've done that. And I said, you know, they said what they had to say. Okay, Mr. Ward, we'll let you know our decision. I said, do you have anything else you want to say? I said, sure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. I said, you know, I would imagine since there's so few of you as parole board commissioners and so many people that come before you, it's incredibly difficult to render decisions um, that are reflective of the merit and the true development of the human being. So I went and got into all that yeah, kind of, well, and they looked up, one well, couple yeah, of them was like this, and a couple of them looked up when I started saying that stuff. Well, we've met parole board members. I remember one saying that when somebody makes a presentation like yours, their thinking is, well, he's gotten very slick. He knows how to w- play the game. So yeah. there's no way. That's either, true. Either you go in clumsy or you, you don't know where it somebody. lands. Yeah. You don't know where it lands. But, but you know, we're talking about reentry years mm-hmm. and, and the, all the different phases of it. I was very surprised, you know, at, thir- at the uh, Fortune Society residents, the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the community meetings every week. Stanley Richards, who's been out of prison for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Rivera uh, got out in 1991. They both said the same thing. That uh, one, one said it, the other said, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stanley said he has to sleep with the television set on. He, that he became so accustomed to noise that the absence of noise, and he had to negotiate with his wife the negotiation was she got earplugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he needed that noise, and he didn't realize for years that it was part of something that held over from his prison experience. So there were little, little pieces that sure. don't go away. Mm-hmm. Do, you need, do you need noise at night? No, I don't. But what I do know, I'm, I'm a really, like, intensely, like, qui- I like quiet. Right, you know, I, I used to say to Stanley, "Come live in my neighborhood. You won't need the television yeah, set on the other yeah, side." I, I, I like quiet, right? And so I'm kind of the opposite of that, right? If yeah. I hear like noise, because what I used to do, David, especially when I went to a medium correction facility, when folk were like up all night, I would go to sleep, and they would be up in the day room, and you know, obviously the cubicle areas would be farther away, and I would go to sleep like nine o'clock, ten o'clock, right? Because I knew they would be up, they would be over there doing that. And by the time they like went to sleep, I was up mm. five in the morning, like reading well, and all well, that kind of stuff. Are so. there any hangovers from prison that that uh, hold you back? That, or or have you been in the experience where, after being home eight or ten years, something suddenly something suddenly happens and you say, "Oh my goodness, that's." Uh, have you had that experience? Just my 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 contact with law enforcement. Right, it does something. It triggers something. When you right? see a policeman on the street, not necessarily when I see them, but they pull me over in my vehicle, right, or ask me for my ID or something like that. It, it, well, it, then I think anybody would get a little nervous. It does, me. but it also makes me reflect on my incarcerated experience too. You right? think? You think? Oh my God, they're going to get me again? Uh, yeah, something. Or they're going to put me back in prison or jail. Even though you haven't done anything. Exactly. So there's this like subtle kind of like paranoia almost, right? Yeah. Well, those of us who haven't been locked up, when we get stopped by, if we if we get stopped by mm-hmm. a cop, uh, we don't have that immediate thing that we're going to be locked up. We're thinking, I'm going to report this guy when, right? You don't think me? That, yeah. I don't have that necessarily because I realize like my past, right, in that kind of way, and that's where it, See, it lives. It's feeling powerless is part of it. That's exactly right, David. But you know, at the same time, I meet with sometimes officer pull me over, just like randomly pull me over. Actually, may, may I ask 
what happened, officer, right? But at the same time, I'm thinking that at any given time, they're going to go in the system in their car when they look from my driver's well, license, they're going to see. Well, that's what happened with the SAM in, in Canada. They're going to see that because every time they pull, they take your driver's license, all they got to do is like type it what's in their car. Yeah. And they can know you was incarcerated before. They see your whole yeah. record and all that. So they come back to you and have a good day, sir. But in their minds, they know that you weren't formally incarcerated. You have a felony. And I remember, you know, Johnny Perez always uses this hashtag, like, felonies are forever, right? Yeah. And it, it that resonates with me because, like, you can never, like, erase that. And although it doesn't define who I am, David, of course, but nevertheless, I know there's a, a reality. In a Could you do I'm. time again? <sighs> Sam, always, Sam Rivera always says, we learn how to do time. What we have to learn is to live out here. Yeah. And, of course, there's this, that street thing. I'm going to hold court in the street. That's yeah, with guys yeah. who are not committed to in their life. They're going to still do the same old nonsense. They got into trouble. But they say they will never get arrested. And, you, and we pick up the papers, and there's a shootout. Sure, sure, Ex-con sure. commits. It's sure, because sure. guys say they will not go back. They will hold court yeah, on the street. And, and people, I guess, feel that way because prison is a certain kind of death for them. Yeah. At least returning back to that. And they would rather die in the streets. And and on the other hand, I know people who have gotten arrested. It, it, you've heard this expression, they throw a brick. Mm -hmm. Because they don't feel that they belong out here. They, they do something to get locked up again. Yeah, and because they're institutionalized and feel far more safer in there than out here, even though it's an abnormal environment. Well, well you've seen the castle, the play. Kaz, yeah. Kaz Torrey says in it... Uh, the last time it was different, he said he was on Rikers 60 times, and he says, every time I got there, I thought, that's where I belong, that's what I deserve. Mm -hmm. When he finally s started figuring things out, saying, I, I, I don't, I'm better than this, mm -hmm. I don't belong there, that's a tough one to think. Sure, it is, belong. it is. And, and some people had that breakthrough, David. At some juncture, they say, well, you know what, I don't belong here, this is not who I am, and this is not what I deserve as a human being. And as a result, never go back to prison well, jail, even after 20, 30 times of being in jail. You, your, uh, your story, and it's your life is your story, is the fact that you were wise enough while inside uh, doesn't happen very often. And it's, mm -hmm. and, and it's partially because the system doesn't want it to happen. No, it doesn't, David. There were no programs that really worked on human development and building capacity of people to return to live a life of contribution. Well, you Just heard my there. report on the the Diagnostic Treatment Center. Sure. I don't know if you ever knew it. No, I didn't know about I, it. You know what reminded me of? I got a call last week from Mike McLaughlin, mm -hmm. who came to Fortune in 1972. He had been, he was about 30 years old, in and out since he was 10 years old. Violent crimes, nasty kid. He, I mean, he said he went to this program and he found out who he was and mm -hmm. who he could be, and he's... He was one of about 20 guys in a period of a year that came to Fortune, and they were so different than everybody coming out. Mm -hmm. They were constantly asking questions about themselves, unafraid to ask about navigating the system out here. Mm -hmm. Very different from everybody else coming out. And then they eliminated the program. They said, it's working. And that's when I realized that uh, the people that run the system have an investment in it being a failure because that's how they hold jobs and why we have to be creative and find job alternatives. And it's also an extension of society, right, and the worldview, uh, particularly in, in America and in New York City and the state, right, and this idea of, of, of being you know, being punitive, right, this retributive kind of thing. It, you spoke about this yeah. eye for an eye yeah. thing, right? And so... Corrections are is an extension of that. It's not necessarily designed to, yeah. to to empower people, but more so to extend 
the retribution and punishment that has been meted out by the courts, right, in the system. And so you can't expect that to happen. So people take the initiative to build things themselves within the system to help develop and transform their life. And why this is so difficult to overcome, I have a, a, a feeling, but it's not a feeling, a knowledge, that if you put on your television set tonight with 8,000 channels and start surfing, there'll be about 40 or 50 of them that are crime shows. There'll be more murders and crimes committed tonight on television mm -hmm. than there will be in the city of New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that people sitting at home are fearful because of what they're seeing out there, but it's all on television. It's not happening on this. And then the news, David, it perpetuates that well, kind of fear if too, it right? If it bleeds, it bleeds, it bleeds, it leads, it leads, right? It bleeds, we all we know that, right, David? And so I look at, you know, my wife and I. We sit sometimes and cut on News wait, wait, Twelve wait, wait, in the Bronx. You just said my wife and I. Where did that? Uh, not married. Yeah, but when did that? You yes, but not you were to telling the person your, when you were telling your whole story about that your relationship. We didn't get to the wife. Yeah, so the relationship... This is going to be the happy ending part of Right, the stuff. relationship I spoke about that didn't work out. Yes. Right, that didn't work out. But to the, today, we're still the best of friends. She's doing fantastic in her life. Yeah, 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 right? get but to the good one. I met my wife in grad school. Yeah. Right, so she and I met in grad school, and we've been together five and a half years. We have a two-year-old daughter, and, you know, life is, is great. And your wonderful. son. And my son is 16 years old. And it, I mean, he's 27 20, now. And in the Army. Years. He's been in the military six years now. Yeah. He's doing great. Okay. He's doing wonderful. All right. So the wife and you, are that, that that's the happy ending that we need. Yeah, to, sure, to, sure. To my, wife and I, my wife and I are, are great. And, you know, we're, perf we're imperfect but perfect for each other. Well, then you don't want to be perfect. Right. We're imperfect the, but perfect for each If you're perfect, other. there's no fun. It's all exactly. over. It's figuring out the problem. Right. So the next time we do a podcast, we had brought up um, Hurricane. Yes. Uh, 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 Hurricane Carter. Uh, Reuben Carter. Yeah. And I have wonderful stories about my friendship with him that we'll do it on our next one. And podcast. I'd love to hear it. Here's an editorial comment. And from time to time on the podcast, Andre and I will be offering our opinion about provocative uh, aspects of the criminal justice system. For example, in Jennifer Goneman's provocative New Yorker essay simply titled The Interview, Two contrasting statements pinpoint the massive inadequacies in our criminal justice system. More specifically is the pathetic irrelevancy of our prison system as a deterrent to reducing crime, but not irrelevant to the lives consumed by the prison rituals and the unchallenged, unchallenged traditions. The greatest society deserves a system that lessens, not exacerbates alienation, and one that decreases the possibility of future victims. In her essay, the author introduces us to a New York City-based volunteer organization, the Parole Preparation Project, and one of the incarcerated men participating with the free world volunteer citizens. The need for such an organization is vast, just one more area that could and should be an indigenous part of the corrections blueprint, but sadly is not. Numerous men and women in our gulags are unofficial members of a non-binding group called the Deuce Club, individuals who have been denied parole over and over and instructed to return in two years, thus the name the Deuce Club. They appear before the parole board with the sentences determined by the courts and are ritually denied. Formerly incarcerated men and women who have made 12 or 13 appearances before being released, have told me of the embittered and terrifying experience, 
pleading for freedom. The guilty party in this story is the parole board. And this is a Fortune Podcast, Inside Fortune. Talk to you next time.